Welcome to the Fitness and Color Podcast, where we follow and highlight the experiences of people of color in the wellness and fitness industry, telling their stories in their own words. So I got a call from from Mike, and he basically said to me, um, "Hey, why don't you go over and row at Henley? You know, the Henley Regatta." And I'm like, "Ah, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, you know, I'm hanging out. I've been training, you know. I just, but I decided to go." And that year, I won the Henley, becoming the first African-American to win the Diamond Skulls Challenge at the Henley Royal Regatta. Akil, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Super excited to talk to you because I don't know any rowers, period. And I don't know any black rowers, period. (laughs) And... I read somewhere that you're the first African-American rower to make it to the Olympics. Well, I'm the first African-American male. Anita DeFrance and Pat Spratlin came before me. There were two women, as usual, leading the way. And then, you know, that was like around 1980, 1984, 1976. And then 20 years later, after 1984, uh, Akil Abdullah showed up on the scene. That's super dope, man. I definitely want to get into all of that and even understand if they had any influence in you or like how you even found crew mm-hmm. because that just is just something I'd never really thought of mm-hmm. as a sport that wasn't a prep a preppy prep school sport. So yeah. it'll be interesting to hear and all that. But um, before we go there, tell the folks where you are, what you're doing today in life, mm-hmm. and a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Well, today I live up on the North Shore of Massachusetts up in a town called Ipswich. I work for a company called Hydro, which makes a live outdoor reality rower. And basically that means that the instructors are actually out on the water or out in nature while you are enjoying our instruction at home on the rower uh, or on the mat. I am a software engineer for Hydro as well. And so I, I sort of get the best of both worlds in that. I can see things happening on the content side of things, on the experience side of things, and then bring that back to uh, engineering and the other way, you know, as well. So it gives me some very good context into sort of what's going on in the business. That's super cool, man. I didn't know that. I know we had talked before, but I didn't know. I didn't realize you were doing both. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it sounds like you split your time between the two or half-half or... Yeah, it, it changes throughout the year because, you know, at some point it gets too cold to row up here in Boston. You know, we could run into a situation where the river might freeze. Uh, so we move around locations down south. But I am unable to do that full time because I like being married. And if I, <laughs> <laughs> if I said to my wife, hey, babe, I'm, I'm leaving for the next three months to go row down south, have fun with the kids. I can't see me being married for very long. So I like being married. So my, my time sort of fluctuates throughout the year. That's cool, man. Yeah, no, I definitely understand that balance. It's awesome that you get to do, I mean, something that you did for a long time, all the way through becoming an Olympian. And then now you get to do it in your working life, you get paid to do it. And you get to, uh, a bit of both. You get to build the technology and you get to be the talent yeah. <laughs> that sells the technology. That's yeah, awesome. I know. When I was talking to the CEO, Bruce Smith, about it, 
he was like, man, it's almost like we built this company for you, you know, like we built, <laughs> we built your dream job. And I'm like, pretty much like, you kind of did. It's uh, pretty awesome. That's really cool. How long have you been with the company? So I started with Hydro full-time in 2019. Before that, I was working in data science at a tech startup in, in Boston. And they Hydro approached me and said, hey, you know, Bruce and our head of experience, Matt Lair, they like approached me and said, hey, what do you think? We've got this great idea for, you know, live outdoor reality. And, you know, having competed at the highest level, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I was like thinking like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, you need to have this, you need to have this. And like, and, and I don't, I couldn't really understand it. And plus we had just had our second child and I was a little bit risk adverse at the moment, but um, came back in 2019 in the spring and, you know, I was just doing one block a week in terms of like filming content and still mm -hmm. had my other job. And I started to get it because what I realized was this was an experience about bringing rowing to to people who had never rowed before you know mm -hmm. all of the hang-ups that i had in terms of what a rowing experience was supposed to be was tied to my sort of small perception about what rowing should be and so you know once i was like wow we are bringing people that have never rowed before to the sport maybe they're not rowing perfectly maybe they aren't growing as well or you know strong but they love this uh they love this platform they love the community and that's when it sort of clicked for me the power and sort of reach that that hydro could have i think experiences are everything and community so ex yeah. couple experience and community together that's kind of what the companies that are doing well even through this pandemic are the ones that have strong community and yeah. create really good experiences. So that's what that's what comes through as I listen to that. Um, yeah. And it sounds like they they roped you in part time to help, and then they they sold you on the idea, which is great. Yeah, I mean, then the next conversation. Why don't you come talk to our CTO and just see how how things go? And it's was sort of like game over at that point. I pretended like I was thinking about it, but everyone I talked to was like, "How can you even possibly consider not taking yeah. this job?" So. I, I want to go back and I want to get to know Akil. I want to get to know sure. Akil as a kid. How you, uh, I know you grew up in Washington. Is it Washington, D.C.? Yep. So, yeah, tell us, tell me about your childhood, how big your family was in D.C. Yeah. Growing up. Well, I come from a big family in the sense that my dad had nine brothers and sisters. So we were that, like, family on Sunday at grandma's house with all the cousins hanging out grandma's in the kitchen cooking, you know, like yeah, <laughs> all yeah. of those things. So yeah, so that was, uh, that was crazy growing up around all of those cousins. And, you know, my parents split when I was, when I was five. So I spent time between both of them. And uh, it was just, it was kind of wild. Like DC at the time, there was, you know, I remember back when DC was, you know, supposed to be the murder capital of the world. And, you know, it was like through, yeah. I lived through like the whole, crack epidemic and all the rest of that stuff. And not to put it lightly, but, you know, I'm definitely fortunate in the opportunities that, that sort of availed themselves to me because it was very easy to fall into uh, sort of that, the, the culture of drugs and gangs and things like that. 
even for a kid that was essentially a nerd like myself. Yeah. You know, I was like a nerd and an athlete. You know, I love sports and I love computers. <laughs> you know, but still, I still wanted a fresh pair of Jordans. You know, absolutely. And I'm and if my mom ever listens to this, she can know that I'm still waiting for her to buy me a pair of uh, retro Air Jordans. <laughs> This is our ongoing Christmas joke, by the way. I keep that is going. hilarious, man. That is hilarious because I could I could relate to that so much. Yeah, you know, yeah. wanting you know wanting those sneakers, not mm-hmm. knowing my parents can't afford it. Yeah, um, and always asking for it. Yeah. How big was your family? How many uh, in your immediate family? How many siblings? So I have three siblings, and we all have the same father and different mothers. So. It's kind of wild because I say that I'm essentially an only child, but I spent most, I'm closest with my older sister who I spent the most time with. And then my younger brother was born around the time I was like in high school, like headed to college. But then I learned later on from my dad that I had another younger sister. I had another sister, (laughs) which was a wild conversation because he's like, oh, you're headed down to Georgia. Why don't you check in on your sister? I'm like, my sister is in Maryland. What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, remember I told you about you had a sister? And I'm like, dad, you have a sister. It's like, that's like one of those conversations you remember, right? It's not like, you know, it's not like, so, but anyway, so it's wow. been, it's been, it was sort of, you know, like I, I tell people that I'm essentially an only child, but I do yeah. have. I do have siblings and we live together with the exception of my younger sister in some some shape throughout my life. Basically, I lived with my father primarily, which had a huge influence on, for me on sports because he played football and he wanted me to play football. And so I played football, you know, and ran track, you know, and like, you know, that's what that's what I that's what I did. Like it was a large part of my identity, yeah. you know. And it's kind of wild to think about the course that my life took. When I went to high school, I started to live with my mom and just, you know, for the like the whole area code zone to go to a better school and and all of those things. And so that's, you know, I still played football, but I was definitely like into other sports as well. Like I started playing golf. I started, you know. Was that influenced by folks at the school, at the, at the new school you were going to? Or why why did you start getting into golf? No, like, yeah. So like I went to Woodrow Wilson High School in Washington, D.C., which has a pretty diverse population. So I had friends from all over the world. Like it's like in West Washington, D.C. And so I just had like I had friends that were like, hey, why don't you come try out golf? I was like, why don't I go try out golf? You know, be the next Tiger Woods. I don't know. Like (laughs) all those those things. Was Tiger Tiger, Tiger was a thing back then? Um, I, don't, I don't i don't remember when did tiger come on the scene i just watched his uh part one of like the documentary that i want to say i want to say like, the early 90s the mid 90s actually i don't know yeah so yeah yeah something like that it, it, I, it he he wasn't like there yet like i i think but he was def- there was like you know so man uh, golfing he was definitely on the news <laughs> yeah 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 so i wasn't very good at basketball as much as I wanted to be, man, I wasn't very good. So I didn't, didn't play basketball. I tried. I tried hard. Aren't you uh, tall? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm like six two. Um, so you know, I mean, I six been, two, man. I could have been. I could have been like you know a guard or a small forward or something like that. But yeah. you know, but um, nah, that wasn't in the books for me. So I think that <laughs> going back to sort of just being um, 
growing up in D.C. at the time, I had friends from all all over at Woodrow Wilson. And so I was just lucky to sort of have friends who rode. And they asked me to row pretty much every year. And I was just like, nah, man, rowing. Rowing ain't a sport, man. Come on. It's not hard, <laughs> you know. But oddly enough, I was trying to, my senior year, I wanted to have a spring sport. But I didn't want, I wanted to goof off. So yeah. I was like, I'll choose rowing instead of running track. <laughs> yep. I know exactly what you mean. You know? that, like, I think but, folks used to do like a uh, PT class for yeah. the spring semester. You try and goof off. So you picked, you picked rowing. Yeah. So you didn't row throughout high school. Nope. Just my senior, just the last half of my senior year. Yeah. So right before you went to college, you probably yeah. already committed to school before that? I, I hadn't committed yet. So I, there were a couple of places that I was looking at, you know, for scholarships and things like that, play football, mm -hmm. but I hadn't committed yet. And so I started, I started rowing. And the first time I did it, I got on one of the rowing machines there and I like went hard for like 500 meters or something like that. And I like passed out, like, it was like blowing chunks. It was like, it was so hard. It was, it was terrible. But at that's when I knew it was the real deal. Like that's when I knew like, this is hard. Like this is really hard. And I was, I was lucky to have some athletic ability to be able to, to excel at a, at a quick pace to compensate, to competency so that I could make, you know, our varsity, our varsity boat, which. And you did that how many What's like how many we weeks? Months and fours. So like there's the diff in rowing. There is sweep and skull sculling, and sweep is one oar per person. So in sweep, you'll have like you like a side. You're either port or your starboard. So you have one oar, and then in sculling, you have two oars, and those are like singles, doubles, or quadruple skulls. Okay. So yeah. So in in high school and in, in in a large part of the United States we focus on like eights and fours and things like that at the championship regardless. There's other boats as well, but you know, that's sort of like the, the big prize for us. How much time between when you started to when you made the varsity team? Probably a couple of months. And, you know, by the time we were on the, uh, on the water in the spring, you know, within a, a few weeks, it was evident that like, you know, I had some, some talent, and so I, I was lucky because at that point we shared a boathouse with George Washington University and Georgetown University. And I uh, started getting the eye from the George Washington University coach. I was yeah. gonna say, because I'm asking because I ran track and I did really well my last semester of senior year and uh -huh. it was already too late mm. to see school. So yeah. I was thinking like, how did you get How'd you get um, recruited if it was the last semester? But it sounds like you, you guys are sharing a boathouse and that's yeah. really, really awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so at that point, you know, we had been talking and the coach from GW had, had put a, an offer on the table, you know, for a scholarship. And, you know, financially, it was a great, it was a great, great package, great school. And, uh, you know, here's the, the story is that I was coming down the stairs for beach week. This is the spring. I still hadn't said, you know, where I was going to go. And it's like senior beach week. All I want to do is like go to the beach. My mom's standing at the bottom of the stairs. She says, so where are you going to school? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, you know, like I wasn't ready. I was like, I was already at the beach jumping into the pool. Like 
acting the fool. And so she, uh, she basically said, you're not leaving until you make a decision. And, you know, we had like a whole bunch of beer out in the back of the trunk of the car. We're like, you know, just being knuckleheads. And I didn't want her to walk me out the door. So I was like, uh, I'll choose rowing. And so like, I, you know, made that decision. And then when I got back from the beach, I like told GW I was going to come. I was accepting the offer and I failed to tell some other places that I wasn't. So I got a call from a uh, coach. I can't remember where asking me why I wasn't at pra- football practice or when I was coming up for football practice. It's just like, oh, wow. yeah, I probably should have, uh, should have, should have been better about handling that. But you know, I was 18, six, six, 17, 18. You know, so. Yeah, that's wild that you made a decision. I mean, I, you know, subconsciously you probably had already made that decision, but yeah. just in the moment there, and you were kind of running away from it. I, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of you running away from it and just like making the decision. But um, and you got recruited to play football, so you, yeah. I mean, you were pretty talented. Yeah. Pretty well, talented. I look at it as like this: like I said, like football was a huge part of my identity, but like I didn't mm-hmm. want to be a football player. Like I knew that, like, you know, like that wasn't what I wanted to be. And I knew that, but, you know, in life, sometimes it's hard to to step away from the thing that, you know, the thing that's comfortable, the thing that's a major part of your identity. I mean, I was so much more than that, but like, you know, that's still in sport. That's an anchor, you know? And mm-hmm. so I needed Especially that forcing yeah. function essentially to, to come to terms with it. I had already made the decision. I just, you know, it's one of those things, like when you make a decision, you just can't say it. <laughs> But you got to say it. You got to put it out in the universe, man. That allows you to be accountable. Hey, friends. I want to take a quick break to tell you about a project that I've been working on, and I'm so excited to share with you. After a year and a half of product research, design, and development, we are proud to finally launch Pioneer's Running Apparel, fusing high-performance fabrics with streetwear design aesthetics, creating a new category of athleisure wear called Performance Streetwear. We have selected the highest quality European performance fabrics, some of which are made of recycled industrial waste, such as discarded fishing nets. We are launching on February 15th on a platform called Fund Black Founders. Head over to pioneers.com to learn more. That's P-Y-N-R-S dot com. And now back to the show. So you decided in the moment and... You felt relieved, I'm guessing. You went out and enjoyed yourself and then Yeah. And then you uh you became a freshman at George Washington University. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was there at a great time. Um, we had a new coach. He actually used to be the women's coach at Georgetown, uh, John Devlin. And I was there with a group of there was like an incoming class of freshmen that had been recruited. There were some older upperclassmen who were like, who are these young guys coming in thinking they own the place, but some that were really talented. And it just made for a wonderful place for me to sort of grow as an athlete and as a rower, you know, both from coaching as well as the academic side of things. You know, there was music there. There was a great, I played the saxophone. I played in the, in the salsa band at GW. There was just, there were so many opportunities. And I'm just like, I was just like so thankful for the opportunity to be part of a GW men's rowing. But uh, going back to my freshman year, it was like another one of those things where like Akil shows up, he's been rowing for all of six months, right? What boat is he, you know, how does he think, you know, like I was in the JV boat uh, starting out because John's like, well, you know, he's like strong guy, but like his rowing needs some work. And then um, I made it to the, I made it to the varsity boat, you know, 
the varsity eight, and there was me and another another freshman who were in the in the varsity eight who made the varsity eight that year, and my freshman year, and it was it was it was really cool to be a part of that part of GW's history, you know. So it was sort of like a rebirth because we had some good teams earlier on, and some people that went on to row at a high level. But it was really cool to be there when people were really saying, like, how can we up the game for the program? And you fell into it. Yeah. yeah. I just think about, like, how many people, I mean, like, you have natural talent, yes. And, but how many other kids, if they had some structure early on and had introduced to these sports, how many more black kids yeah. could, be, could be successful in, 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 these, uh, in these sports? But that's really cool, man. Um, that's very impressive. Yeah. So, yeah. so to your point, you know, like that is why that's why it's important, you know, for like the things that you do around running, you know, to to bring the to bring sort of visibility to it, right? Because you got to see it to be it. The things that um, I'm working with the Most Beautiful Thing Foundation Inclusion Fund, so that it's based off of the there's a documentary out called The Most Beautiful Thing about a group of black young men rowing out of West Side Chicago at a time when things were just kind of rough, you know, like bringing different yeah. gangs together. It's like, you know, it's an amazing story. But out of yeah. that, my buddy Arche, who also who, who wrote the book that, it, that they started the memoir off of, is really working hard to bring under-resourced, you know, kids from under-resourced communities into the sport of rowing. And it's a, the amazing thing about it is you talk about, we talk about the transformation that sports has, you know, in terms of like the discipline, you know, the trust, like the, all of the things that are required to be successful. And I think that you're right. When introduced early, it's, you have the opportunity to have like your trajectory altered in a, in a huge way. Absolutely. I talked to uh, another gentleman who's a, uh... Olympian, uh, he's a runner, mm-hmm. and same thing. He fell into the sport because of a mentor in middle school, mm-hmm. and then made a critical decision in high school, and then to be a runner and became an Olympian. And so, like, it's yeah, just right? it's just so wild because how many kids could how many kids could fall into that, or at least you know yeah. have the opportunity. Yeah. Not everyone has that internal motivation. Not everyone yeah. has that drive. Yeah, but it could it could. Uh, definitely change your life. Well, the, the crazy thing about it, right, is like we, we you think about all of the things that happen in our lives. And like, I definitely remember um, like being a kid watching the Olympics, you know, mm-hmm. and like going into the bathroom, having the theme playing in my head, like, like imagining myself at the Olympics and never really thinking about what vehicle would get me there, you know, okay. like what would be the thing to get me there? And who would have known it would have been rowing, you know? But like going back to like, that's why stories are so important, man. That's why it's important for us to think about our own personal narratives and why it's important for us to tell the story of, you know, successful people of color. Because like mm-hmm. then you could think, wow, that could be me, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So freshman year, mm-hmm. you got into the varsity team. Yep. You got on the varsity boat. Yep. Were you the only black black student? Black rower at the at the time. Yes, I was. <laughs> Throughout my entire time, I was the only uh, black rower. How about on the women's team? Were there any black women rowing at the time? Do you remember? No, but there was. You know, there were some Latinx women on the women's team. Okay, so then you were the only black man, black mm-hmm. student on the row team, mm-hmm. and then you went into your. So your how'd your 
freshman year finish up freshman year go from there. i think we so we were we were essentially on the second tier of like collegiate rowing yeah. and we finished third that year and so we sort of progressed throughout the throughout the time there but i think our highest finish was 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 second or something like that we won like some okay. southern championships and, and things like that but sort of end of the year our highest sort of national finish was at the Intercollegiate Rowing Association Championships and called the IRAs. And uh, I can't remember, I think we were in the, maybe in the the top 12 or something like that, top 14 okay. um, for the boat that we were in. So it wasn't, it wasn't like this whole stellar career. Like people are looking at me in college and being like, ooh, he's going to make the national team someday. In fact, I tell yeah. a story that my coach and one of my friends, you know, uh, Chris Korzanowski, when I was in college, he was the national team coach. And I, I like, he was down in DC looking at some guys from Georgetown. And I said, uh, Hey, you know, someday I hope to, to make the national team. And he's, you know, he's policy says, no, this will never happen. You are too small. And, <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. And so he had went away to coach. Uh, I forget where he went to coach, but then he came back to the U S in 2001 or something like that and at the time i was like one of the top scholars in the country and i was like hey chris how's it going remember me and he's just like oh no i never said this i never said this to you um, <laughs> <laughs> so like yes yeah, so i wasn't like just like in college people like oh he's going to go on to make the national team and 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 when you know be the first you know black person to make the national team and uh, black male to make the national team and and all this other stuff um it was hard work it was basically mm -hmm. the war of attrition for me. I had it in my head that I was going to make the national team um, and that I wanted to row in the Olympics. And I just kept going. It basically, after I graduated, there was three years before I made my first national team, before I was identified as being, you know, sort of at the level needed. And I tell people that it's not, it, it's a, there's a lot of hard work involved in, in achieving your dreams and not everybody just shows up and makes it. There are those few and you look at them and you're like, man, that is phenomenal. But it is a tremendous combination of work and talent to get you there. I would say a large majority of people that make it to the highest level, uh, there's definitely talent, there's definitely gifts, but there's a lot of work that goes into to making it to the top level. So. You're saying three years after you graduated. Mm -hmm. So in 1990, yeah, in 1999, I made the national team. And throughout that time, I lived in a two-bedroom motel with three other guys in Tampa, Florida, eating where we would rotate who slept in the bed and who slept on a, in a sleeping bag, you know, ate tuna fish and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. The The manager of the motel's name was Sham, and he was, he was a funny guy. <laughs> You know, I slept on a on a sofa in Augusta, Georgia. When I was training down there, I uh, slept on a sofa in Philly. I just did whatever I had to do to sort of to be where I needed to be to grow. And so that's you know that whole process finally paid off when I made the team as a spare in in 1999. Wow, that's some hustle. That's some. I mean, it it sounds like NBA D League. Yeah. Well, yeah. NBA dreams, you know, like I'm trying to put it in my mind as to how. So wh what was the program that, is that called amateur? Are you an amateur at that? Yeah, time? it's an amateur. Like when you. Yeah, yeah. It's all amateur. Amateur sport. It's all amateur, yeah. Just going back a little bit, when did you put it in your mind that you wanted to be an Olympian or wanted to make the national team rather? Pretty much in, in, in college. 
you know, like I Sorry. thought, like hey, those guys are good, but you know, I can do that. I'm, you know, I'm I'm good enough. You know, I can yeah. do it. Whether or not it was, I had no idea. But like, you know, <laughs> hey, I said it in my head that I'm good enough. So, gotta put it out there. Yeah. And then after college, tell me how you signed. How do you end up pursuing an amateur career? In so, so basically, in rowing, there's there's like uh, there's like a bunch of places around the country that are sort of like development you know, development camps and, you know, the national team coaches will identify guys who are like the top talent and say, hey, you can come train with the team and this is sort of where you are. But there's also people who train at clubs who have desires, like Potomac Boat Club is where I trained initially after after um, after uh, college. And I was so fortunate that we had like a coach there, Ken Dreyfus, and we had a group of athletes who were all trying to like row at the elite level. And they were really good and we really pushed ourselves and 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 so i was i was i was very lucky and i also had the support from the club like i had a job working for a defense contractor you know um okay and and he was a member of the club and so if you know if i was tired or if i you know all of the fact he knew what i was trying to accomplish so this is why i'm such like you we were talking about community earlier and like that's why community is so important because you can't do these type of things without people there that have your back. You can't, you know, like you can't make it to the next level without people who are saying like, see your journey as worthwhile. And so um, I was just like really blessed for that. And then at that point, I went down to Augusta, Georgia for a little bit to try it because there was a, a, a part of the national team that was training there. And mm -hmm. I trained with those guys for a little bit. And then finally I came up to, I came up to Boston and I was training with the 1997 world champion, Jamie Coven at the time. And that was the year that I made like some amazing gains. Like that year training with him really took my, took my um, training to the next level. And that was because I rode my bike to the boathouse. Then I rode my bike to work. Then I rode my bike to the gym to lift afterwards. I didn't have a car. So I essentially rode my bike everywhere, even in like snow. Like I was on my bike. Yeah. And I was just like, but that's sort of like a steady state workout the whole time. Right. Yep. So you're yep. just like, that's just like cardio, 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 you know? And I think that, that we're talking snow in Boston, not snow in DC. <laughs> not snow in DC. But that's the type of thing that just, you know, raises your baseline right? Your baseline fitness. And that's what I needed to have my baseline fitness. And then that in the combination with all of the, like the, the lifting and just the miles on the water, honing my craft, that's sort of what really upped my game. So basically in 1999, the head coach of the team, men's team at the time, Mike Tatey said that, yeah, come on down and train in Princeton, you know? And so I went down to Princeton, New Jersey to train down there. Uh, Jamie as well had, had, had moved down there as well. And so, and then I was training with like the guys, you know, that would go on to, to do like some amazing things. And so being in that environment for me was like another sort of step, like just like crazy, you know, just because like you always, you set your benchmarks, you know, and you have to set it as high as possible, you know, and keep working to get there. And, and for me, that's what that allowed me to do. That's really cool. So you're 
at this point at an elite level. Yep. You've worked yourself up, up to an elite level mm -hmm. in 1999. Yeah. And then 1999, the year of a kill. He's going to the Olympics in 2000 in Sydney. He's going to be the first. African-American male to represent the United States of America. Ha ha ha. Nope. Didn't happen. Hey friends, I want to take a quick break to tell you about a project that I've been working on and I'm so excited to share with you. After a year and a half of product research, design, and development, we are proud to finally launch Pioneers Running Apparel, fusing high-performance fabrics with streetwear design aesthetics, creating a new category of athleisure wear called performance streetwear. We are launching on February 15th on a platform called Fund Black Founders. Head over to pioneers.com to learn more. That's P-Y-N-R-S.com. And now back to the show. 33 seconds. 33 hundredths of a second. 33 hundredths of a second. Yes. I read that wrong. Yeah. Not 33 seconds, 33 hundredths of a second. I lost by that much wow. in the Olympic trials. Yeah, man, that, that, was a, that was a hard one. That was a hard yeah. one. Um, how, uh, wow. What, uh, how old were you at this time? Let's see, like 27, I think, something like that. Okay, 27. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so, you know, it was a chance to be in the Olympics. Did you... Think of the twenty, the two thousand four Olympics right away, or like nah, man. how long did it take before you? I was, you know, pondering my existence in the world, ready to walk the earth like Kane from Kung Fu. You know, I had no <laughs> idea what was going to go on after that. Um, I tell people like some of the best advice I got was at that time, even though like I didn't want to take it. You know, I get off, I'm on the dock, and and like my parents are standing down at the end of the dock. And I just like, I'm just like, man, I got to go down and face them. They were thinking I'm going to the Olympics, like disappointed all these people. And uh, my coach, Mike Tatey, said to me, he said, look down at the end of that dock, man. I said, your parents still love you. And to me, like that was sort of, that crushed me even more. Because then I was like, oh, man. <laughs> but uh, I didn't know what was coming next. Um, but that was actually sort of, just like, you know, just like the universe is always, always there for you if you're listening. Um, so I got a call from from Mike and he basically said to me, um, hey, why don't you go over and row at Henley? You know, the Henley Regatta. And I'm like, ah, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, you know, I'm hanging out. I've been training, you know, I just, but I decided to go. And that year I won the Henley, becoming the first African-American to win the Diamond Skulls Challenge at the Henley Royal Regatta. Yeah, that was like kind of like, all right, man, I'm not done yet. I got more work to do. Yeah, I got more work to do. Exactly what you needed. It was a stepping stone. It was a stepping stone. Yeah, yeah, it was a stepping stone. So, so you know, it's like when you get when you you really just have to be open at at times to sort of hear what what's being served up to you because opportunity is everywhere. And that sort of was like. For me, like the when I when I think of of being sort of like in a place where things aren't great or where I'm like looking around the world and saying, ah, it's just I'm just like remember that like, well, let me listen to something else. Let me see what's out there. Let me open myself up to see what opportunities are out there to bring change, you know. 
Um, and that's, that's, that's sort of like a powerful message uh, to me as a reminder that, you know, you got to keep going. Hustle. You got to keep hustling, man. You got to keep hustling. Got to keep hustling. <laughs> and as black people in this country, you got to keep hustling. We always no hustle. No doubt. No doubt. One more. I want to go back one more time mm -hmm. in sense of like the hype that was around you in 2000. Mm -hmm. You were saying it before, you know, like you're going to be the, the first black man to yeah. get in the Olympics. Yeah. You're not living up to that hype must have crushed you. I mean, we, I think we've, yeah, that like all that weight. Yeah. Um, did it hurt you more than it helped you or did it help you more than it hurt you? Um, I don't know like what, I mean, I'm sure that there was like definitely like some pressure there, like psychologically, mm -hmm. you know, that probably wasn't, wasn't good. But at the end of the day, my mission was, it wasn't to be the first, you know, uh, African, that wasn't that, if, if that had been my goal, if my goal had been to be the first African-American male to go to the Olympics, then it would have crushed me probably beyond beyond thought. But my goal was to go to the Olympics, you know, got it. To to be on the starting line in the finals to race for a gold medal, you know. Mm -hmm. And that being my goal, uh, to some extent, like was like okay, you know, like I that was in some ways it was background noise. I mean, it was always there, you know, because like everybody loves a good story. Going back to my, you know, the narrative, and so, and so that sort of was like part. That was part of it. I mean, you rebounded, so you you yeah. won you won the the Henley Henley Royal Gata, the Diamond Skulls, and then from there you got right into training for twenty for two thousand four. Yep, got right into it. Came back, and that's when Chris came back in two thousand one to the U.S. And you know, I put together a boat of 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 guys. Little did I, eventually the, the guy who was rode in front of me in the quad, uh, that's, that's like two oars per person in 2001, would eventually wind up being my doubles partner uh, in 2004, uh, Henry Newsom. So yeah, that was a wild experience. And, and, you know, like, so here I am, I'm training in, in Princeton, New Jersey. We go out to San Diego as well in the winter sometimes. And basically, one thing that I'm very thankful for is that, you know, um, our coach, uh, head, the head coach, Mike, used to always say to us, I want you guys to have jobs so that I don't have to feel bad when I have to cut you, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like, it's not like all, all you got is rowing and I cut you. Man, that's that's hard. But, you know, if you have a job, then. So we were very lucky in that regard that, like, we had people once again in the community that had jobs. There was also the Home Depot thing going on at the time. They were supporting athletes as well. And so it was just like this, this great time of my life, really, you know, living with guys, training, we're training, we are traveling the world, going to regattas all around the world and racing. And so like, yeah, so like 2000 through 2000, you know, three, where like everything's firing on all cylinders. I was, I decided that I was going to row the single in 2002 so like i didn't even i hadn't even thought you know what i hadn't even thought about the fact that i am the first black single scholar to race, you know in the united in u.s history as well just unpack that one so yeah you know had great support again and then 2003 was actually not like a great year for me like my training wasn't going great i wound up actually only being a, a spare in 2003 for for the for the sculling team which was hard mm -hmm. like that was like not to race at world championships that year was 
was tough knowing that it was the year leading up to the Olympics. And it was it was made doubly tough by the fact that the, the quad didn't qualify outright for a spot at the Olympics because they take your finishes from world championship and say like this many people get an automatic bid, the rest have to go to regional qualifiers. And so like that just was like a, a gut check because I was like, I should, you know, like I could have made that boat go faster. But, you know, we never know now. <laughs> um, but yeah. then coming back, training through that, the the actual Olympic year was a wild ride, man. Like I had ups and downs and like I was performing really well. And like it was like it was obvious that I could make boats go. But like I was having like I wasn't doing well at the trials that we were having and things like that. Um, and then I have like these breakout moments in some training sessions and, you know, just like really wasn't coming together. We have these things called t- speed orders where like people come and they race and, and, and see, you know, s- in small boats, right? So like if you're not training at one of the, the camps, you know, with the national team, you can come and the coaches get to see yeah, you yeah. like, oh, maybe that person should actually be training at the camp. And so my partner at the time, uh, Henry, decided to, to row. We were supposed to row at the speed orders and he was like, he was going to row with someone else. At the time, because our boat just wasn't going that well. Um, so, like, this means, like, all right, well, I'll row in the single. Like, I can be a single scholar. I know how to do that. And then I forget what happened. Like, a couple of days before, like, his partner decided to go back to the eight. <laughs> we get into the double, and it just clicks. Like, we'd been training, like, the whole time, and it hadn't really clicked. And throughout the whole speed order, we just got faster and faster. And so, like, we won that. And, uh, and that meant that we got to go to, um, to the World Cup to see if we could finish in the top three there for automatic spot from the U.S. without having to trial the boat. Uh-huh. And so we, I forget where we came in. We didn't come in the top three. We came in like maybe. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> yeah, like maybe the top 12 or something like that. And uh, so that meant we had to go to trials. But we came back and... We had a big conversation about whether or not we were going to stay in Princeton or come up to uh, Boston and train with the, the who the at the time the the lightweight coach uh, Charlie Charlie Butte and because Henry had rode at, at Harvard and so um, we decided to pack up our bags and leave Princeton which was which was hard for me but uh, I think it was the right decision for for us because in Princeton they would have wanted us to try to make the quad to go and qualify the boat. Whereas we already knew that we could be a fast double. Yeah. So we did that. Um, we took that route. Good decision. Yeah. Yeah. And then we came back. We won the trials and we were off to off to Athens, man. It was a lot of hard work to get that far. <laughs> and I still have more work to do. You know, that wasn't that was the end of it. Um, so at this point, you're 31. Yeah. Yep. 31. What's the average life? I guess like age of of, of rowers in, in the Olympics. It 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 varies, but you usually find guys sort of tapping out in like mid thirties, something like that. You know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. So you're in the Olympics, or you, you're in Athens. Yep. And how was that experience? I tell you, man, it's amazing. Like walking into the Olympic Stadium, like the whole being there at sort of the birthplace. You know, going to the Acropolis. All of those things are just like, I'm like flashing back to that little kid, scrawny little kid standing in the bathroom, 
thinking about going to the Olympics, being like, man, did this really happen? Like, you know, just a couple of days ago, I was like a scrawny little kid. Um, and just, uh, it was, you know, it was, it was like being in the Olympic village. Like the whole thing is just, you know, when the, it, it's a showcase for the sport, you know, it's, you know, it's an amateur sport. And so, you know, it's like, this is it. This is prime time. And so we get there and first we go to a training camp uh, over in, in Bulgaria, which was wild. We like showed up in Bulgaria and they were like, okay, here's the deal. Don't stop for anyone on the highway. Uh, even if they are cops, <laughs> you know, like, just like, this is like, we were all, we were staying in like this old sort of like Soviet style hotel with like, you know, like security guards all around and all of this stuff, like, you know, accompanying us as we went to, uh, went to and from like the race course and all of this thing. And I'm just like, man, this is wild. This is like a wild, this is like a wild trip. Here, so we did that. We just sort of get acclim, you know, acclimatized to both the, uh, the sort of like the, the you know, the environment and the time change. So we did that for a couple of weeks before the Olympics, and then we come back to to uh, to Greece and get ready to row. And so, um, you know, I remember our first race. We're just on the line. Like I'm a bit nervous and everything, and we're getting there, and we go, we shoot off the line, and you know, um, we didn't make it to an automatic bid to the semifinal. So I think we had to, or did we? Yeah, I think we, I can't, I can't remember, but, um, but we made it to the semifinals and in the semifinals, we had a dead heat for third places for third place. Normally there's a six boat final, like for the medal round. Mm -hmm. And we had a dead heat with, uh, with, uh, with my buddy, actually one of my buddies, uh, from Denmark, uh, he went to school, he went to Berkeley out here and rode, uh, Nito Simons. He's, uh, he's funny, funny enough. So we made it and it was like the first time there had been a seven boat final at the Olympics in quite a while. And so we wound up finishing sixth, which sort of validated yeah. us being there and beating the guys, <laughs> you know, you guys, yeah, we were sixth, <laughs> but, uh, it was, you know, we were, I forget three to four seconds off of the bronze. Um, so, you know, like we put up a good race and we had a, a, a great trip and it was definitely like, it was, it was amazing to, to set out to, a, to, um, to accomplish something and then do it. Um, and then the party began and I have never partied like that in my life. If you have Olympic dreams, do it just so you can go to the after party, period. <laughs> oh my God. Cause you know, cause the like party, there's the after party you know <laughs> you're there with like the world's best yeah. the, the u.s's best and you're in the olympic village with the u.s's best i mean that's 2004 yeah who was there in 2004 kobe was there in 2004 yeah yeah i mean but that's just it you know like i'm like in the like i'm like walking into you know like um i'm like walking into like the red bull party or something like that and like, I've got like all my press and like all my gear and they're just like, go ahead on in. Meanwhile, Evander Holyfield is like standing, waiting to get in. And I'm just like, what? Just like, you know, it's like, I, I will never have that sort of, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll ever reach that, that sort of uh, level of fame uh, again. Like I wasn't even famous. It was just like, I was there as an athlete, you know? Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, wild, wild, wild times, man. Keep it PG for your listeners, though. <laughs> no, I got it. No, no, no. That's cool. I don't. I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, you just think is. about like having trained for so long and just like, you know, just it was it was fun. It was all good fun. It was all good fun. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, what I remember most, uh, even though like Greece was, I think, in a in a it wasn't the best time for Greece. Uh, um, it People weren't sure if the capital, if it was worth the investment that they had made. Um, but I tell mm-hmm. you, the opportunity to, to to participate in the Olympics in Greece is something that um, was absolutely phenomenal, absolutely amazing to me. And the people, like, just from all around the world, happy, just walking around, enjoying, you know, their country, you know, like a country pride, but also just fraternity and brotherhood, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. Just, you know, like you walk down, you can't even speak the language of people and you're out like your arms around them and you're just, you know, singing songs, making up words because you don't know their language. And it really is just like, you know, like so much fun. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. So cool, man. So then what happened? uh, So then after Olympics. Yeah, it's time to it's time to come back and be an adult. Wasn't. I was gonna, yeah, because no that's got to be a tough trend. Um, but I had to decide if I wanted to keep rowing, and I, you know, at, at that point, I decided that I had put off an, enough things in my life, um, in terms of like relationships and in terms of like uh, mm-hmm. other things that I was like I wanted to, um, I wanted to just go out and and uh, and, and and try some other things. You know, I kept rowing. And like, you know, I would race from guys that were race with guys at, you know, different races around the country at different regattas. And I was still training for the most part, just not as hard, but I had to make a decision about what, where I wanted to go. So I had to choose between going to Philadelphia and and working in the world of finance or coming up to Boston and and working for a tech startup. And I decided to come up to Boston, man. And, um, and uh, that for me was a, a great a great decision because I got to grow in in ways that that you know I didn't I didn't like go goes beyond um, just being an athlete and I was in an environment you know as it goes once again I got my job obviously there was a the the CEO of the the company and founder was was a rower um, but yeah it's 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 hard to transition uh, even though we were talking about those skills that you get as an athlete transferring them to the business world isn't always a direct you know path and so it's good to have people mm-hmm. there to mentor you along the way and that's what i had um, and i would have had it in either case but like you know um it's it was it was definitely uh, a blessing to have have some people who were who would mentor me along the way and i would think boston's a really good market for rowing and a good place yeah. to row so i'm not sure I guess New Jersey too. Yeah, yeah. New Jersey, you want to be in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah Philly, Philly's too. It's one of the, you know, it's one of the rowing, rowing capitals, venues uh, yeah. in the United States. Um, but, uh, nice, man. Yeah, so I came up here. I was really, really uh, excited. And it was actually, I started working for a company called Interactive Supercomputing. I did, uh, it was acquired by Microsoft. I worked at Microsoft for a while, and then I went on to uh, work at a company called Cargo Metrics, 
And then after Cargometrics, that's when I came to Hydro, where I am now. And it's the, the thing that I love about, about being at Hydro is that it really has forced me to, to remember that I need to give back and mm-hmm. that there is a large community of people out there who, who would like to hear my story and, and who I can inspire. Like one of the greatest, one of the greatest parts of my days is like getting like a little pop up in my inbox saying, you have feedback and someone saying, you killed me in that workout, man, but thank you so much. It was just what I needed. You know, like people who I, I mean, like they know me through, through interacting and hydro. Yeah. I don't always, you know, know them. And it's so great to be a part of someone's fitness journey. Because there's so like we get the endorphins, we get, you know, like all of the things you get from exercise and moving your body, like and being uh, an inspiration to people in that regards. And also in giving back to people who might not have ever found the sport. Like I said, through through the work with the the most beautiful thing inclusion fund, you know, through being a member yeah. of uh, like this this past summer was crazy, right? Because after the murder of George Floyd, people we're just like, whoa, this is real. And, you know, like, and, and the way that athletes spoke up and the way in particular, black, the, black, the, the black athletes showed up, the black rowers showed up, you know, and all rowers, like they were like showing up and saying like, we need to address diversity, equity, and inclusion in rowing. Like we have to do it. And for me realizing, like I had stepped away and I'd been away for so long and now I'm realizing, whoa, there are a lot of black rowers out there. There are a lot of black people in the rowing community. There are a lot of people of color in the rowing community. And, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, you know, how can I help be a beacon for them? You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, like when I did it, I was alone, you know? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't alone, but like, I was the only one. And now, you know, a lot there are athletes that are facing that. And, and how do they navigate that? And can I be a resource to them? You know? And so um, mm-hmm. I'm really, I'm, I'm really happy about sort of this sort of next chapter where I get to be the, the old man and say, back when I was your age, you know? <laughs> but no, but it really do. I think you'll do that well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to really be a part of it. And, you know, I think that the the platform that Hydro has allowed me to have, the platform that the National Rowing Foundation has allowed me to have, it's it's all just sort of gravy. Like for a year that's been so crazy with the pandemic and sort of uh, politics and, you know, race in America, this for me has been a way to feel like I'm I'm actually doing something. Mm-hmm. to help bring people some some joy and to improve their lives and impact it. I love that, man. Well, Akil, thank you for joining us. This is very special. And I think uh, a lot of folks will draw inspiration from your story and from what you have planned for the next chapter of your life. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for allowing me to babble on. I'm so glad that Bridget put us in touch. It's inspiring. Uh, you know, I think the work that you're doing as well. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a quick review. This helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. 
If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it with them. That wraps up today's show. Thank you, and I'll see you on the next episode.